from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome back to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Our guest today is Daphne Lazar Price, Executive Director of Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. She's a committed community leader and advocate for all sorts of people, and we're excited to have her join us on the program today, hosted, of course, by Rabbi Michael Bayo, CEO of the East Valley Jewish Community Center. Good morning, Daphne. Good morning, Rabbi Bayo. Good morning, Adrian, and good morning, Daphne. Thank you so very much for joining us for another uh, conversation with the rabbi. We're really excited to hear about your background and your current work and get into our conversation. Well, good morning, and thank you for having me. It is uh, very nice to uh, be here. Thank you for uh, including me in this conversation, and um, I'm so excited to talk. Now, I'm intrigued, Daphne, by your background, both as an activist and as someone committed to the community in which you are embedded. You have served a number of different roles leading up to this one. So before we hear a little bit about Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, I'd love for you to just share a little bit of your backstory and you know, kind of what got you from uh, Concordia University and your undergraduate work through the many different positions that you've held. North American Director of the Muslim Leadership Initiative at Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. There's a lot of interesting things along the way. How do you describe this career path when you talk about it to others? Uh, so how do I describe my career path? I don't know that I've ever actually named it um, um, in terms of, you know, quantifying it that way, but um, it, it's actually been kind of circular. And let me explain. I grew up in Toronto. I grew up to uh, in a family of secular Israelis and who overnight discovered Chabad and became like Hasidic overnight. Um, uh, but my parents, because they were committed Israelis, um, also had some, you know, some tension with um some of the other ideological pieces. And so they were also committed to, um, uh, you know, staunch Zionism and belief in the state of Israel. And they were also committed to, I don't want to say that they had strong feminist sensibilities, but it, they were adamant in their minds that I was going to university and I was going to have a career of my own. They had their own path for me. I was going to be a lawyer, doctor, architect, or dentist. <laughs> and when I told all them- All those together. All of those together. But right. when I told them that I was planning to pursue- um, a graduate degree in Judaism, they were like, when we said doctor, we didn't mean of religion, but they got over it. <laughs> um, and so uh, I grew up in Toronto where I did my undergraduate studies. I did my master's at Concordia. And at that point, it's a whole other story, but there was a lot of anti-Semitism rising in Quebec. It, it was 1995 in the year of the referendum when Quebec tried to secede from Canada. Um, and a lot of anti-Semitism erupted as a result of that. The the premier at the time said that that they lost the referendum because of the rich ethnics, which is code for the Jewish community. And um, uh, it was clear to me that my future was not going to be in Montreal. I moved to New York, where I started a, a second degree at Bernard Revel, which is Yeshiva University's graduate program in Jewish history. I was there for two years and I fell in with a group of rabbinic students who were really progressive thinking, uh, but very you know orthodox committed. And uh, th that was kind of my chevra, that was kind of my community. And in my second year, I want to say, there were a few things that happened. Number one uh, was the first Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance Conference, which I attended, and I'll come back to that in a second. And the other thing that happened was um, there was a fellowship at the time called Torah Miriam, 
which was meant to be a fellowship for women in rising Jewish leadership positions. We met once a week over the course of 10 months where we studied and we taught. Um, And the goal was to kind of advance or create some kind of clergy-like entry point for women. We were not yet at the point where we were talking about Maharat or rabbis or what that even would look like. There was no clear pathway forward in terms of internships. Um, But there were this, so there was this kind of confluence of events. And so um, when my friends actually from Bernard Revel, rabbinic students were like, come with us to this conference, this Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance conference. Um, uh, And I was like, well, sounds like it's up my alley. Um, I walked in really not knowing what was to happen um, what to expect at all. It was before email, before internet. It was just, you know, friends saying, come along. Um, and when I walked in, there were over a thousand people, women and men, more women than men, but who were deeply committed to the vision of an Orthodox feminism. Now that I know a little more on the inside, they didn't know what to expect either. Again, it was before email and internet and people came, you know, day of to register. They had on the Thursday before, it was on it was on President's Day weekend in 1997. On the Thursday before, they had 300 people register. And then on the Sunday, they had over a thousand people show up. So I remember vividly, you know, janitors pulling chairs out of closets and tables and let's, you know, break down all the walls. And that was that. So I, I you know, I, I threw myself into the work. At the same time, I also met my husband, who we're now married. And so we started dating. I I will add also that my husband comes from a multiracial family. What took me on a tangent away from Orthodox feminism professionally, not personally, um, was some of the racism that I experienced in the Orthodox community. My husband is also a born and bred Washingtonian, and neither one of us are really committed to living in New York. And so we moved down here, down to Silver Spring, where I live now, got married, and uh And then I knew I wanted to stay in the Jewish community. I was kind of done with academia. And I ended up at the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, which then, you know, took on a 17-year career of its own. Long story short, I ended up back at Jofa, where I probably should have started or stayed throughout. um, And that was uh, just over two years ago. It's a fascinating uh, journey that you had, uh, both professionally and, and personally. I have so many questions to ask because, you know, my background is so millions of years away from Jofa. And um, if somebody would have told me a few years ago, maybe, you know, 10 years ago, maybe less, um, that I would be married to a woman that is studying to become an Orthodox rabbi, I would have asked that person, what did he smoke that morning? Because (laughs) I would like some of that as well. You know, and sometimes I still feel that way. (laughs) Uh, And so my question to you is, uh, you know, I grew up in a community where anything that had the word feminism in it Mm -hmm. was uh, an inherent ontological conflict with orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. So please explain to me this uh, mishmash of words, Jewish Orthodox feminist. (laughs) Sure. I mean, first of all, you felt that way then. Do you feel that way now? I'll tell you later. Okay. Look, when you are raised in a school system where you are given access to all of the information and the expectation is not just that you practice, but that you lead by example, it just becomes a kind of accepted norm. Uh, And so um, also, and also as you see external influences, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but we live in the world where we have access to 
technology and media and whatnot. And when we see women rise to all kinds of leadership positions, those are things that we aspire to also that doesn't take away from um, personal observance or faith or practice. Um, and one, I think, very nicely supports and feeds into the other. Now, whether that's you're talking about equitable learning opportunities for boys and girls in day school system, whether you're looking at who the teachers are, men and women who are teaching both boys and girls um, the same material, uh, whether you're looking at who is preaching from the pulpit in the front of your shul. Please, God, one day we should all be able to go back to shul in safe and healthy uh, ways. Um, is it always the rabbi? Could it be somebody else? And is the ra- does the rabbi have to be a woman? Um, does it have to be a rabbi? And so all of those questions open up the opportunity of why not? It opens up the question of, of why not? And I can, and I have the knowledge, and I have the skill, and I have the drive, and it doesn't take away from um, orthodoxy. I think that we've somehow turned feminism into another kind of F word, um, and I think that it's not that. I think that feminism is another way of saying equity or equality, depending on where you are. And I don't think that that takes away from orthodoxy. What do you say to those orthodox people that say that, to those non-orthodox people that say that orthodoxy is inherently uh, misogynist? (laughs) Um, I mean, sometimes I laugh (laughs) and I didn't mean to laugh uh, in this way, but sometimes I laugh because it makes a lot of assumptions um, about orthodoxy that just um, isn't true. Um, I think that there are Orthodox Jews who are misogynists, and I think that there are Orthodox Jews, both men and women, who support a patriarchal system. Um, and I think that um, I think that they're just not correct. You know, I, I alluded to this before. I worked for the reform movement for 17 years. Um, you can't see me on the podcast. Um, I don't cover my hair anymore. I actually did cover my hair for almost the entirety of my career there. Um, and the questions that I would get all the time would be like, either comments like, oh, I didn't recognize you because you're wearing a hat, to which I would say, haha, you're just faking it because I always wear a hat. Um, Or I would get questions like, why are you wearing a hat? Why do you always wear a beret? Why do you wear a scarf? Um, And it opened up a lot of conversations. Um, And I think that uh, part of the misnomer of Orthodox being or Orthodox Jews being misogynist just comes from lack of education and awareness. That's not to say that there aren't misogynist Jews out there, Orthodox Jews. There certainly are. But I I don't believe that that is the default of how we move in the world. So now that you have explained from your perspective that the two words and the two concepts of Orthodoxy and feminism, they match well together. Could you please explain to me, are there limits? When we introduce changes to any system, at what point that system is not the original system? And maybe we don't want it to be the original system. It's fine. But at what point, and this is a question that I ask my wife all the time, just because a group of rabbis call themselves Orthodox, while 99.99% of the Orthodox world does not consider them Orthodox, what makes them Orthodox? Meaning, if I call myself a lawyer, but 99% of lawyers do not recognize me as a lawyer, can I really claim to be a lawyer? So my question is, since the overwhelming majority of orthodoxy does not recognize feminism and orthodox feminism to be a legitimate form of Judaism, why uphold the term orthodox? There's a lot there to unpack, and I want to kind of digest it in my head. A couple of things that come to mind. First of all, you know, there's the famous Gemara of Moshe Rabbeinu coming into uh, Rabbi Akiva's 
uh, lecture hall and he sits in the eighth row, which, you know, uh, the, the, the smartest, the most proficient students sat all the way in the front and then the less proficient you were, you sat in the back. And, um, and he looks around and he was like, I don't even know what this is. And I think that your question is flawed on, or the, the assumption is a little bit flawed in the sense that orthodoxy or what we perceive to be orthodoxy is not the same as it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Also, the, the history of the term orthodoxy is really a modern invention. It came uh, in the 1800s uh, um, in Europe, and there's a lot that goes into that. In today's orthodoxy, if I can call it that, people look to define their orthodoxy by what they're not. And a lot of times, the status of women and the inclusion of women helps people define themselves as they are that orthodox or they're not that orthodox or they are that kind of synagogue or they're not that kind of synagogue, right? So there are synagogues that will do whatever they can to be, and I'm talking OU synagogues where the rabbis are members of the of Rabbinical Council of America, uh, where, the, where they will do whatever they can to be as inclusive of, of women within the synagogue life. Probably the red line is being counted in a minion in a quorum of 10, um, I'm trying to think if there's another red line, but you know these are these are synagogues where women read from the Torah in an all women's setting, where they dance with the Torah on Simchat Torah, where they read Megillah Esther for other women on Purim, where women serve on the board and in some rare cases also serve as synagogue president. Wasn't that called a few years ago conservative Judaism? Uh, look, you know, I, no, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to understand. Then what is the difference? Meaning. If open orthodoxy or whatever they want to be called today, because I think that Rabbi Y said that they're not open orthodox anymore. I don't know. But if uh, the very liberal segment of the orthodox community is uh, importing in their daily life and in their understanding of Judaism, the same understanding and practices and theology that the conservative movement had just a till a few years ago, then isn't that a continuation of the conservative movement and more power to that? And if the current uh, liberal orthodox community does not agree with the theology or the practice of the overwhelming majority, like 99% of the orthodox world, then why stick to that name? That's my question. I am not questioning whether you have the right or the legitimacy to do what you want to do. Eh, whatever. That's that's every group can choose to do whatever they want. My question is, why stick to a concept, to a name, to gain legitimacy in the eyes of those that don't want you? I, I'm a little bit stuck on the question, so I'm gonna I'm gonna answer it from a different direction. Thank you. What I want to suggest, if you look back at the history, if, and if you look at uh, who was really the first to lift up girls' education, girls' formal day school education, did not come from reform and conservative. Right, it was Sarah Schneer. Sarah Schneer, right? Sarah Schneer came from the right, the founder of the Beis Yaakov movement. It was, you know, and, and she went and she got rabbi's permission and sign-off and support to be able to do this. Yeah. Was there pushback? I have no doubt. And in the writing of history, do we elevate her um, in all kinds of ways, I have no doubt. Um, and I have no doubt that she jumped through many hoops of fire to make this happen. The change came from the quote unquote, the right and not the left, even though the influences may have come from external influences. Yeah, but you cannot compare orthodoxy when Sarah Schneider started Besyakov 
to where Orthodox is today. I mean, we have pictures of Rebetzin in the 50s where their skirts were would not be accepted today in the Orthodox world and uh, their head covering or their uh, or showing collarbone that would not be accepted today in the Orthodox world. We all know that the Orthodox world went much more to the right. I really don't want to belabor how women dress and how it signals, because I think that if you go to various communities across North America and in Israel, what you wear, and the same is true for men also, the kippah that you wear does not necessarily reflect your affiliation, your identification. I really want to move away from the virtue signaling of how long a woman's skirt is, how long her sleeves are, and how high her color is and uh, and how much or little is exposed. Look, if you want to talk about what's accepted in orthodoxy and what is clearly not an orthodox approach, you can look at the erasure of women in publications in the more right-wing publication world, right? That does not come from Torah. That is not grounded in any halacha. That is something that came from the right, uh, that actually came from the right in Israel that has now been imported to North America. It is a damaging, damaging practice. Women and men in more right-wing circles, the people who, for whom that readership, like they, they are the targeted audience, right? Obviously anybody picks up a magazine and if you, um, and if you are a Shabbat keeping uh, family where you don't check your phone, you don't watch TV, you obviously you read and you don't read a Kindle, you read a magazine or you read a paper book. And so, you know, these magazines are, are in many, many, many homes, not in my home um, for exactly this reason, but they have developed these policies where they will not publish um, pictures of girls who are older than six. They will not publish pictures of women at all. And they claim that that's rooted in Torah. No, it's not rooted in Torah. It doesn't exist anywhere. According to them, it is. No, they say that it is. Look, there was a conversation with a publisher of one of these magazines who he talks about, um, he was in a different podcast. He talks about the day before the 2016 election. And he met with the editorial board and he said, you know, what do we do if Hillary Clinton wins, right? Do we print her publication? Do we not? Back and her, I mean her picture. Do we print it? Do we not? Back and forth. And the joke was, he said, no, we need to pray for a miracle, right? So they tabled the conversation. It turns out that she didn't win. It became a moot point, right? But it was a question they grappled with. And one of the things that they said was, it's not about Torah. It's about marketing to our community. One of the things at stake here, and, and this conversation I think is so illuminating because it reveals some of the micro fault lines, the areas where debate tends to coalesce. I think it's useful to back it out a little bit in kind of scope so that we can have a, a conversation about some of the broader issues here. An example would be in the state of Texas until very recently, the history textbooks that were assigned in schools did not teach that the primary cause of the Civil War was the desire of the Southern states to continue to own slaves. And the historians who had lobbied for this curriculum to be in place asserted that that was based on their correct understanding of history. And the preponderance of professional historians do not agree with that and have now successfully changed the curriculum to reflect that, in fact, what the record shows, what the primary source documents at the time, it's actually in, it's an incontrovertible fact as uncomfortable as it may be for some people, that in fact, the primary reason for secession was the desire to preserve white slaveholding capability. So we wouldn't get into that conversation and discuss it on its merits by saying, well, they said it was true. Well, yes, of course they did. That was their point of view. We have to back out a little bit and ask ourselves, 
what's going on here. And I think what's going on here is a much richer and also in some ways much more problematic and troubling aspect of our shared human experience, much of which is actually not shared. (laughs) The humanity part is shared. The particular parts of our experience are not shared at all, all the way down to the individual level where you have a set of twins who grow up and don't have the same life experience. So let's not kid ourselves. We are the same and we're fundamentally different all the way down. Here's the broader question. When a point of view that evolves into a complex set of commitments like feminism, which at its root seems to me to be a a commitment to equality and or equity. And Daphne, you mentioned the difference between those two. I'd love to hear you riff on that a little bit later because I think they are interesting. Mm -hmm. Equality and or equity intersects with historical traditions that are profoundly connected to the fabric of life. Rabbi's question actually becomes quite valuable for everyone, which is, why do we, those of us who do, why do we hold commitments in the face of overwhelming resistance to those commitments? And that question could be applied not just in communities of faith, but in anywhere where people are advocating for change and tradition at the same time. We get a really difficult combination of things I've watched some of these things play out in the community that I was raised in, which I don't actively participate in, which is Protestant Seventh-day Adventism, a deeply patriarchal church organization, which will defend its patriarchy with biblical references. In this case, they're referring to Christian writings, the so-called New Testament. Mm -hmm. And they will find evidence that Women have no place on the platform, and therefore there cannot be any women ministers ordained, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, growing up in a very progressive Southern California affluent suburb where a lot of the liberal academics who had been rejected from other Seventh-day Adventist colleges and universities had landed, I got an education from people deeply committed to social justice, who taught the history of the human rights movement, taught civil rights focused on examples from Adventist history, like Fernando and Anna Stahl, who were pistol-packing Marxist liberation theology missionaries in South America. No matter which tradition we're from, we get into this kind of thing. Well, how can they do that given this? And why do they still want to be called Adventist? They're clearly working against the mainstream. I guess the real question I have, Rabbi, for you, and then let's have Daphne respond to some of these things, is why does that matter? If people are profoundly motivated to work for these things, why does it matter what they call themselves? Definitions matter. We live in a world as human beings that we communicate to each other who we are, what we believe, what we want to do, what we don't like, what we do like, what we support, etc. using our words. This is the difference between animals and, and humans. We have words. We can express our words our, and we can express our thoughts and feelings and we can build world or destroy worlds with our words. So words are important and the definition of the words are important. I am not sure if Daphne has actually understood my question. And so let me... Uh, even uh, clarify better my question because maybe I did not express it properly when I asked it the first time. I don't identify anymore as an Orthodox Jew. 
And the reason, yeah, when people ask me, what are you? Yeah, I'm Orthodox. Leave me alone. Mm-hmm. That's my mm-hmm. two seconds answer on the elevator. But if somebody that really knows me, I can't. Because my theology, which is at the basis of orthodoxy, the doxa of orthodoxy, is not the same as 99.99, etc., etc., of the people, both establishment and lay people and everybody, that belongs that is a card-carrying member, either willingly, unwillingly, knowingly, or unknowingly, of orthodoxy. Therefore, I, at a certain point in time, realized that it's a different religion. And I joke around with my friends, those who that I study with, and I say, yeah, it's a different religion. It's fine. So they are orthodox. And I went back to my original roots. And if somebody asked me, what are you? My honest answer is, I am a Sephardi Jew that tries to keep Torah and Mitzvot, which for those who don't know, it means tries to keep the laws of Judaism to the best of my ability. And I fail every day miserably. So it's a long definition. Fine. But that's who I am. I went back to my origins because a lot of what we are discussing is Ashkenormative, comes from uh, OCD, Ashkenazi, uh, and, you know, half of my family is Ashkenazi, so I understand the OCD in my family. (laughs) And as a friend of mine says to me, all Ashkenaz Jews, including rabbis, are OCD. That's also true. And so I went back to my Middle Eastern origin. I went back to my Sephardi origins that do not have these conflicts between Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, uh, what are you, Zionist, anti-Zionist, half a Zionist, half Orthodox, three times a year because I drive to the Chabad shul, but in reality I eat pork at home and I couldn't care less about the prayer or whatever and anything in between the Hasidic Jew that erases the picture of a little girl because, oh God, what is a little big picture of a girl is going to do to his sexual libido or the reformed Jew that doesn't know that he's even Jewish and everything in between, that's an Ashkenazi problem, a Western problem. It doesn't exist in the Sephardi world or at least it did not exist in the Sephardi world. Today it exists in Israel. Uh, but it did not originally exist in the Sephardi world. So I went back to my origins and uh, I said, I'm a Sephardi Jew. I'm a Sephardi rabbi. And I try to do the best that I can and I fail. Therefore, my question was to Daphne, what do you care to be legitimized or not by using the same term that they use? Okay, thank you. I understand the question better now. Also, I want to say that I also grew up in a house with a little bit of conflict in the sense that my mother was Sephardic. Family, her family was from Greece and Turkey. Good food. Delicious food, right? Turkey. Yeah, we're cousins then. There you go. My father's family came from Russia. Less good food. Not everybody's <laughs> perfect. Hey. <laughs> but, now, but, now, but now you understand better my question. Yes, yes, yes. So I don't need other people's validation of how I identify. I identify as Orthodox, right? I live in Silver Spring. It's a very modern Orthodox community. If I drive 45 minutes away to Baltimore, I love the community in Baltimore. 
it is not the community that I would live in. It really is like a sub-segment. It's like part of Borough Park, moved out of Borough Park. I used to live in Borough Park and I loved it. Okay. When I walk into Seven Mile Market or Market Maven and I, I'm not wearing a shaitel and I, you know, dress not necessarily the same way as they do, do they consider me Orthodox? Maybe, maybe not, but I don't need their validation. So that's that that's that's one answer. The other answer, I think for me also is people by nature are are tribal, right? Like I have my tribes and I have I, I don't have just one tribe. I have multiple tribes. And one of my tribes are Orthodox Jews. There are people who keep Shabbat the same way that I do, who keep kosher the same way that I do. We send our kids to the same schools. We belong to the same kinds of synagogues. And that's my tribe. Um, or that's one of my tribes. And having said that, there is also this kind of internal conflict. To me, was best said by da- Rabbi David Weiss Halivni, who I think was actually a conservative rabbi, who said, I have trouble talking to the people that I pray with, and I have trouble praying with the people that I talk to, right? And so like that, therein lies my two tribes. But when I live amongst, and when I work amongst, and when I advance the work of Orthodox feminism, my tribes meld a little bit. And that's fine for me. That's great for me. That's exactly where I want to be. And we have many thousands of people who are like-minded, who support our work and who come to our programs and call us for advice and help me advocate for this, that, and the other. And I don't need somebody else's validation to tell me that I am not Orthodox or that I am Orthodox because because I identify as an Orthodox feminist. Just as a curiosity for me, I, I fully understand the differences in your perspective in some alachot, uh, you know, that you understand them differently than, let's say, a rabbi in Borough Park. Mm-hmm. That's fine, legit. But theologically, are there differences as well? Not only on the level of the practice, but theologically. Meaning, do you, and that's a question, I, I don't assume what you're going to answer. Do you adhere to the theology of what orthodoxy is today? I'm not talking about the practice, but the theology. Do you believe that? Uh, Do I believe in Torah Messinai? Uh, in, in its full complex, in, in its full, uh, in its full complexity. In its full complexity. Or do you believe in Ashgaha Pratit in the way that it is taught? today in orthodoxy, which is that, uh, you know, if I drop this pen, is God is deciding the way that the pen falls. Uh, do you believe that the Mashiach will come? Do you believe in a physical resurrection of the dead? Because I, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we live today in, in a, such a strange world in the orthodox world that if somebody were to come to shul, a traditional orthodox shul, okay, whatever that means. And he were to go to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, I keep halacha and I'm gay. Mm-hmm. Or another person that says, Rabbi, I don't keep halacha at all. In fact, I drove here, but I believe everything you believe. They will give to the second guy in Aliyah, to the Torah, but not to the first guy. Because the theology has become so overwhelmingly important of what you believe rather than the halakha. How do you lead your life? So uh, I'm, I'm glad that you kind of raised this, um, this comparison. Um, uh, first of all, I disagree. Um, I think that uh, the gay man who is in shul and says, um, I have my mother's yard sites and I'm going to 
um, lead Shahri Davin from the Amud this morning. I think that if he is in a synagogue where he goes regularly and people know who he is and it's not a secret and he already has and he's he's already established himself in the synagogue, I think nine times out of ten, um, he will not 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 in my world. Okay. In the, the, the no no it's fine I'm saying it's a more, maybe even the more modern more well not in the not in the Haredi world okay so not in the Haredi world but I also don't know how many men come out that comfortably in the Haredi world so in the world that I live in that I move in um, most commonly and comfortably is the modern Orthodox world but this goes back to uh, to what I was alluding to before. So in my spare time, if I have spare time, I co-teach a class at Georgetown University Law Center on Jewish law. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a rabbi, but I teach the class with two other fellows. One is a conservative rabbi and one is a more right wing fellow. And um, the more right wing fellow last year when he taught the class, he, you know, he explained the different denominations and the movements. And he divided it up based on whether a gay man would be counted in a minion or get an aliyah or any of those. And he, you know, and as the spectrum moved to the right um, in terms of religious identity, it became less common. And I, and I, I you know, I looked at him and I, I literally I stood up and I, I was like, this is not accurate. I think that if you are the most Haredi person and you're at Newark airport and you're looking for a 10th man and the man is wearing a rainbow kippah, you will count him in the minion because you need the 10th guy. You can have 25 women and nine men and, and the women will not be counted which is fine. That is the halachic parameter. What I'm saying is that there are more instances than not where somebody who is out and gay uh, will be counted, maybe ridiculed behind his back, maybe even to his face. But when push comes to shove, the fact that he is a man means that he carries more halachic weight in his community than I would. You still do not answer, and it's fine, whether you believe or not. I mean, whether your theology is orthodox, but that's that's fine. <laughs> I mean, the the answer in a nutshell is is yes, but but even that's like a multi layer. I mean, that's like an onion you can peel back a hundred layers until you get to what that actually means. Yeah, because there are multiple approaches. And look, when when I served on the Chaver Kadisha years ago, when when I helped prepare um, dead bodies before burial, it was both out of a deep respect for the person who was dead in front of me, but also with an eye to when Mashiach comes. What is the state that this, you know, that this, obviously the body decomposes over time. Um, but if Mashiach was to come tomorrow, what is the state of the body in case that is the case? <laughs> Just edging your best. <laughs> edging your best. Okay. I'm struck again as the third wheel, the outsider to the conversation by some parallels, Daphne, that I'd love to hear you speak to. I'm reminded, having spent a decade or more of an earlier professional career in the Arab world, the figure that stands out for me is Fatima Mernisi, who was a Moroccan feminist sociologist and writer of many books on Islamic feminism and the struggles that she had and others since then have had in trying to situate within the Islamic tradition a redemptive narrative of equality that can be found in the same texts that are often used to justify inequality. Many of the same parallels as, you know, Islamic fundamentalism being a modern phenomenon that shrouds itself in a medieval form, but is absolutely a late 18th, primarily 19th, and now you know, into the 21st century kind of a movement. Another example from another tradition of someone working within 
but opposed to the tradition in order to quote unquote save it. I'm not sure that's the language either she or you would use here. Mm -hmm. If you're not trying to save anything from anything, I don't know. But the, the rabbi's questions have really raised this question for me, which I find fascinating about humans in general, which is why does this matter so much to you? You, you know, there's so many things that you could have been the doctor, the lawyer, the engineer, mm-hmm. right? You could, you could have appeased your parents in that mm-hmm. earlier moment mm-hmm. in life. And yet, even in the unformed way that we all are in our you know, 20s, stumbling away from something and towards something else, even though we don't fully understand it, you chose a path that's taken you where you are, circular or otherwise. So I'd like to hear now about Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, the organization's work and your work. What are you up to? What are you out to accomplish? What does it look like and why? Why does this matter so much? Sure. So thank you. Um, first of all, what the number one thing that we're working on right now is we actually have a conference coming up. It will be it'll be virtual. Uh, unfortunately, that's the reality of where we are. Um, there will be kind of uh, four separate tracks having to do with advancing women in education and leadership, uh, expanding ritual, and then a kind of catch all of you know where we are in contemporary issues, especially looking at COVID. Right? So obstacles and opportunities of women in the workplace questions of intersectionality that have bubbled up, especially in 2020 and the like. And those are, uh, in particular, the ritual leadership and education. Those are like some of our core buckets of the, of the work that we do to help advocate and to give women and men the tools to help advocate, to advance women in those spaces. Apologize for interrupting. I want you to pause for a second on the word intersectionality, because for those of us who are comfortable with that language, it means something and for many others it may not. So can you speak to that, why that matters, what it's about? Oh, I mean, that's like a heavy <laughs> loaded question. Um, but if you are in the justice space, and this is this is where I come from, if you are in the justice space, um, you come with your multiple identities, right? Michal um, uh, talked about how, you know, all of the pieces of, of, of his identity that feeds who he is today. But one of the things that have come up, unfortunately, in intersectionality is Zionism, uh, support of Israel, and as a result, Jews have been edged out of some of the justice spaces. And after the national upheaval, after George Floyd was murdered uh, last year, and with the rise again of Black Lives Matter, a lot of Jewish people were like, we want to support and we don't know where we fit because we don't feel welcome. For us, this was actually like a deeply personal conversation because we are a multiracial family. We did not go to any of the protests in support of Black Lives Matter, just because of COVID and exposure and just the timing, you know, we had to deal with like personal health issues first. But the question was like, how can you align with multiple identities that may be in conflict or that may be trying to edge you out? Can you uh, show up with your full self? And, you know, this is something that actually started up several years ago at the Chicago Dyke March. This kind of predated, I think, Black Lives Matter. But, uh, but, you know, as the justice movements kind of grow and meld, all of the identities uh, come into play and then some are called into question. And so the question is, how do we create space for people to show up with their full self in justice space? Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I think we are all dealing with without having a theory about it, (laughs) without having language to describe it is the multiple identities we carry as individuals and as communities. And you mentioned a deeply problematic intersection in the first part of this interview, which is the corresponding rise of nationalism in Quebec and anti-Semitism in Quebec, Mm -hmm. an intersection of a kind of 
ethno-nationalism with a hateful face, as we often see in Eurocentric nationalisms. Anti-Semitism is so deeply embedded in many of these European movements that it becomes very, very difficult to extricate oneself and finding a situation where you can express a complex point of view when the rhetoric is so brutally simplifying Violently simplifying. Yeah, violently. Yes, I think that's the point is that it's violent. Yes, becomes deeply problematic. Rabbi Bayo, as CEO of the East Valley Jewish Community Center, you do not lead a religious community explicitly in the in the rabbinical tradition. And yet you are bridging these worlds, your training and your conviction and an organization that is explicitly open, that is embracing of diversity and difference beyond the Jewish community in all the many different forms. We should be asking you to talk about intersectionality, although it's maybe an unfamiliar word, but you here you are in complex interaction with multiple groups with different claims and competing interests and all the rest. Intersectionality is a word that I will never use. Because? Because uh, it claims to uh, make connections where connections, I believe, don't exist. But... I do like what Daphne said, that we have multiple tribes that we belong to. And then I think that is very true, and it's very true for me as well. And sometimes I feel more comfortable having one hat of one tribe, and sometimes I feel more comfortable having the other hat of another tribe. And sometimes I don't want both of these tribes to know that I belong to, uh, to, to both of them, and I want to belong to a third one, and nobody bothers me in that tribe. You know, <laughs> um, So I, I like that metaphor very, very much. And, and, and the JCC is very much like that. Yes, so we have people that come from all sort of, multiplicity of tribes. But in my work here, I try not to talk about politics. So that takes away a huge topic of conflict, especially in America, and especially during these times. So I don't talk about politics. And uh, and every time I hear somebody talks about politics, say, this is the J, you know, as if there is this understanding that, uh, that, that, uh, that we don't talk about politics. But we do talk a lot about religion and we do talk a lot about Israel and we do talk a lot about interfaith and we do talk a lot about a lot of other subjects. And I hope that we are able to provide a forum where everybody feels free to express themselves and also protected that what they are going to express, people will hear it. And, and listen to it. So that I think is very important. Not necessarily agree, but at least listen. So I just want to say also that I think that you can be, that you can talk politics without being partisan. And I think that there's a differentiation there that you can make. Um, I do want to add, I actually want to reflect back. I actually think that a lot of the work that we do at JOFA is similar in the sense that we want to meet people where they are, right? So if you have um, a very right or a very left wing orthodox identifying woman coming to say, I need help with X. I'm not judging based on how you dress, what your other practices are. Um, if you need help advancing issue X, whether it's the erasure in, in, in publications, as I mentioned, or um, access to uh, good education for both of your children who are 
boys and girls uh, and the like. Um, uh, you know, those are things that we can help with, that we can provide tools with people who people who just want the material to know, to, to realize that maybe they've been taught wrong all along. But in that way, we're also a community center, even though we're not a physically community center. It's a way about building community and it's a way about, you know, our mission statement is that we advance, um, we we advocate on behalf of women in order to create um, a vibrant and orthodox community. And it's all done within the framework of halakha. We don't care. Um, I shouldn't say we don't care. We care about halakha. We don't care where you come from, uh, only what it is that you want to help advance. Daphne Lazar Price is executive director of Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, an organization that has 25 years of history advocating for women's rights and opportunities and desiring to build a vibrant and equitable Orthodox community. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at phx.fm, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next Conversation with the Rabbi.